listener. Car Sales acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. I would happily drive an EV if there was more incentives from the government, but right now they're just still too expensive and I don't think the infrastructure is up to scratch. Recent figures for vehicle sales in the month of January in Australia suggest we are tracking toward basically doubling last year's battery electric vehicle deliveries in this country. So how is infrastructure going to keep up? Is there a federal policy or is each state doing their own thing? How does it all work anyway? Can the government really make that much of a difference? What will that tipping point be? Today's guests will certainly shed some light on that. The one thing that we know for sure is that buyer appetite is strong as EV products coming to Australia expand. Hello and welcome to What's Under the Bonnet. Rusty and Nadine Armstrong with you. The theme for this episode is one that you've been wanting us to tackle for a while. You've probably heard that Australia's electric vehicle policy and uptake is 10 years behind the world. But why is that the case and how can we expect it to change in the future? In August of 2022, we got a glimpse into what the future of EVs could be with the announcement of the National Electric Vehicle Strategy at the Electric Vehicle Summit. Well, today we're joined by New South Wales Treasurer, Minister for Energy and Member for Hornsby, Matt Keane, to give us the most up-to-date plans from the desk of the New South Wales Government and how they're tackling what is a sizeable challenge. That is staggering to think we are 10 years behind. Hopefully, despite being late to the party, we can learn from some of the mistakes the others have made along the way and sort of profit from that. Now, also in today's episode, we're going to meet an EVA who's enjoyed trusty old Aussie-built machines, some of the finest European sports cars that he's had in his garage as well. And he drove a Tesla in the US before they were really a thing back here in Australia. George Kirsch is a fan of the show who DM'd us. What the hell? Let's get him on, we thought. So he will join us today. Plus some EV news, including, wait for it, electric Fairies. That's what happens when my buddy Nadine starts mucking around with a live document. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Well done. It's in the rundown. We're going to do it. We'll tackle your questions too. You can email us, podcast at carsales.com.au. We would love you to rate and review the podcast too. Thank you very much for all the feedback on last month's episode. Getting Ralph Shields back on, he's from Jeep in the design area, as you know, was something that you all really seem to enjoy and breaking down that sound development that's gone into the awesome new Audi e-tron GT was a fascinating discussion. Shameless plug, quick one for all of our other car sales pods. Along for the ride with our buddy Anthony Matafari where he's in the passenger seat with celebs and sports stars, a lot of fun there. Everything you auto know with Erin Molan, great everyday advice there. She talks to experts Keeps it in plain English. Um, Great everyday learnings for all of us about the second most valuable purchase you'll probably ever make. And the showroom, which covers everything new in the marketplace. Great news in there. Worth having a listen to the boss too. Mike Sinclair's unpopular opinion this month on the EV argument. Won't spoil it for you. It's a bit controversial. Check it out for free at Listener or wherever you get your pods. It's time for our first guest. Dr Gail Broadbent has been a policy advisor to the New South Wales Government. She has a Bachelor of Science, Master of Environmental Management, as well as completing a PhD on social attitudes towards electric cars. Dr Broadbent, welcome to What's Under the Bonnet. 
Thank you for having me. We often get told that Australia is 10 years behind the rest of the world when it comes to kind of EV uptake and infrastructure, which is a a little around the the flavour of today's podcast. How much of that is true in your mind? Oh, absolutely true. If we're looking at Norway, we're at least 12 years behind them and they are the world leaders by a long way. But in terms of government policy, we're definitely about 10 years behind because without government policy, you're not going to get the changes that we need because the people who bring cars in are incentivised by legislation, regulation, that type of thing. They don't make as much money per vehicle for an electric car, so why would you unless the government puts in regulations to make that happen? It does seem that the barriers certainly outweigh any incentives at the moment, particularly for people that are not familiar with EVs. It's still pretty daunting. So what role does the government play in ensuring that, you know, people incentivise to buy mm. EVs? What, mm. How can they help? What are, the, what are the things that need to happen now? Gosh, there's, there's quite a number <laughs> of things that they can do now. The first and most important that they need to do is introduce a mandatory vehicle fuel emissions standard. Now, we have a voluntary one at the moment, but of course... Nobody has to take any notice of those, and they don't. And so a mandatory one where you say, you know, across a whole brand, let's say VW or Polestar, the cars that they bring in have to be, on average per car, a certain amount of greenhouse gases per kilometre that are driven. So they measure that for every vehicle that they sell, and then they average it out. Now, over time, that number gets lower and lower. So you've got to sell more and more electric vehicles to get that number lower, Now, some brands aren't selling them in Australia just because they don't have to, and they won't bring them in until that emission standard gets lower. Those standards are in place in a lot of other countries, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. We're one of the few that don't. Australia doesn't have it, Russia doesn't have it, and Turkey, of all the developed countries, they're the three that don't have them. You can tell by electric vehicle sales in those countries what happens when you don't. The numbers are really, really low, so we're way behind. That is the most critical one of all. And the roll-on effect for that is really that we just don't get the product, isn't it? So while people are crying out for particularly cheaper EVs, Mm. so there's no incentive to bring those products here, to to bring them on mass even. So That's right, because up until now, the manufacturers have focused their attention on the more expensive part of the electric vehicle market, just because when you're introducing a technology, that is usually what happens for any type of technology. We can all remember flat-screen prices, how expensive (laughs) they were when they first came in. So over time, the manufacturers are now starting to bring in cheaper ones, but they're not bringing them here to Australia because they don't have to and they'll make more profit out of the other ones. So that brings us to another point, which is government procurement. So if you've got all these different government departments, let's say the Department of Health and they need to buy vehicles, if they say, well, we want to buy electric vehicles, then that brings a whole lot of numbers in at once of one particular model and they've got a guaranteed sale for the importers. And that's really important because not only does it mean that in three or five years time when they turn them over, there's an increase in the secondhand market. But the other really important thing is it increases the number of conversations about electric vehicles in the community. And people, if they don't know about something, they're not going to go and buy one. And it's a way of informing them and normalising it within the community. So what kind of role does government play, at a, even at a, at a state level, in in helping to to make this happen? And, you know, we've obviously heard things around national electric vehicle strategy and, and so on. Where are we at and what progress is being made or should be being made? 
Well, really all levels of government need to attack this. And at the state level, they can offer incentives to help reduce the purchase price because as we discussed, they're at the higher end of the market and people just can't afford them. So the incentive of a rebate or tax deduction or help with the registration costs is a whole lot of different taxes and charges that apply to being able to drive a vehicle. And if you take off little bits off each one of those, that actually mounts up to quite a considerable amount of money. But the other really important factor that we need to consider is the implementation or the rollout of recharges. Because if you don't have charges, particularly on the major routes between the cities, people are going to be nervous and say, well, I don't want an electric car because I can't do those sorts of trips. And you need fast charges in the major locations that are popular so that you don't have queues. But the other places, there are plenty of places around where people don't have access to a parking space where there's a supply of electricity. So local governments have a role, particularly with DA applications. If you've got a home and you're going to do a renovation, a thing that you should be doing or should be thinking about is installing at least a 10 amp PowerPoint. That's a normal one that we all have in your garage so that your car can be recharged. Now, that's something that if you're having a DA, that the council can say, yes, you must have one. You've done extensive research and beyond our government discussion here, what more broadly is the public attitude towards EVs at the moment? This has been a bit of a journey of discovery for me, this podcast, learning about it and so on. I'm sure there's plenty of people in the same in the same position. Clearly, vehicle sales in this space are increasing in a, you know, on a decent percentage. What's the, the public perception of EVs right now? Look, it's getting a lot better. There is no doubt about that. But there's also an awful lot of people who know nothing about them. And that was what really surprised me. So just recently, I've done research in New Zealand because they are way ahead of us. Hmm. Their legislation came through in 2016. So they had quite a few years to get used to the idea. But what really surprised me was the number of people who knew nothing about it, didn't know that the government had implemented a whole bunch of regulations and changes and incentives to get people interested. Their knowledge was quite limited. Mm. The people who owned them already, they were great, they knew all about it, and we didn't find any problems with them. They had great knowledge, but the rest of the mainstream population actually knew very little. So this is why radio interviews like this are so important because people listen to what you have to say. They, they like listening to experts. So it's really important. What do you think Australia's EV landscape could look like in the future if we actually got the policy part right? It could change very quickly. The biggest issue here, of course, is that there is a desire, there's a pent up demand for these things. But at the moment, supply is a very big issue because the factories in Europe aren't set up for right-hand drive. And so if the factories aren't producing right-hand drive vehicles, even if the government changes the legislation tomorrow, which they really need to do, it's going to take time. But the really good thing about the legislation is if you've got mandatory vehicle fuel emission standards, there's a fine attached to it if that brand doesn't succeed in achieving the goal of whatever the number is. How significant are those fines? Oh, very significant. I was quite shocked because 2021, I think it was, uh, VW didn't achieve the standard by half a gram per kilometre per vehicle. It was 95 million euros. Wow. That's a lot of money. That's a a decent fine. Yeah. And the price of the vehicles comes down to the price of the batteries because, you know, let's face it, they've all got wheels and they've got a body and seats and all those things. That, That all costs the same. The biggest change is the cost of the battery. And over time, over the last 10, 12 years, that price has been coming down 
per unit and they're saying that very soon the price per unit of battery capacity will become such that the cost of an electric vehicle for a similar model would be the same price as a fossil fuel car. That at the moment is where there's a sticking point because the battery production doesn't meet demand. So they can charge a little bit more and so they don't have to bring the price down. So if Australia was smart, we've got the lithium here in the country. We dig it up and we ship it out. So we need to purify it. We need to have battery factories. We need to have maybe even electric car factories that could satisfy our demand for these right-hand vehicles. Quarter of the world's population drive right-hand cars, so there's a market out there for them. Doctor, can I play devil's advocate here for a moment? I, I, I grew up with a genuine love of cars. My children are teenagers. They are very aware of the importance of the move in this direction. They like EVs and so on. But there will be people listening to this podcast who will not necessarily share that that same view. We clearly have to do something better for the environment. That That's right. What do you say to some of those people who, and there will be a percentage of them that are, that are listening to this today? You can't make people buy them. I mean, there's mm. there's no way you can make people buy them, but you can explain to them why it's a lot better. It's better for the personal health of the person driving the car because diesel itself is a class one carcinogen, which means it definitely causes cancer. So anyone who's working in that field with diesel fumes all over the place all of the time, the illnesses that come from driving those sorts of vehicles is quite serious. The noise that comes from vehicles, everybody's much better off with a quieter EV. It's not to say they're silent because there is road noise, but people who get in an electric car go, oh gosh, these are so quiet to drive. And then they say, oh, but the road noise. And you go, well, that's because you can hear it now. You didn't <laughs> used to hear it over the top of the engine. Drivers of trucks, so much better for them. they not getting the vibration problems. They're not getting the back problems. They're not getting, there's an illness called dead finger. Just come from the vibration of the the wheel and they're in the truck so long during the day. So personal health is so much better for everybody if we can go that way. I think the cost is so much cheaper. If you've got electricity and you've got solar panels on your roof, you can refill your car every day for free. It doesn't cost you anything. That is a saving across every year. So a couple of thousand dollars a year of not buying the fuel. But even if you're buying the electricity from the grid, even with our grid in Australia, which is not not the greatest, it's still better per kilometre for the environment. But of course, there are just some people who just love the old, their rev heads or whatever, and that's fine. They'll die one day and, you know, everybody else will be driving an electric (laughs) car and, you know, you can't change everybody, but what you can do is say, well, here's the evidence of why we need to change. Doctor, you've been fabulous with your time coming into studio today. Can we kind of wrap up with a maybe a summary in some respects? I mean, Energy Minister Chris Bowen announced a, a consultation paper for the first national electric vehicle strategy at the 2022 Electric Vehicle Summit. Where are we at in terms of a, of a strategy, short and long term? Or what would you like to see um, happening mm-hmm. in, in this regard? Okay, well, I think getting the federal government on board, getting all the state governments. Now, the state governments are ahead of the federal government in that regard because they are offering some incentives, but not for long enough. So I think I think the message I would have is get on board, realise that the rest of the world is moving this way and we have to do it too. Start the changes straight away because the longer this goes on, an average car is on the road for 20 years. And unless we get rid of the purchase of new fossil fuel cars by 2030, we are not going to get to net zero by 2050. You have to say, well, what's the goal here? 
the federal government said before the election they wanted 47% of new car sales by 2030 being electric cars. Well, that's not going to cut it because any car that is not electric by 2030 is still going to be on the road at 2050 burning fossil fuels. So we can't, unless you say, okay, we'll start converting them across, which is quite possible because mining companies do that. But if the state governments and the federal government and the local governments aren't all on board, then we are not going to reach that target by any stretch of the imagination. This has been very eye-opening and I reckon we'd love to get you back on the podcast again at some stage. Thank you. Dr. Gail Broadbent, thank you very much for coming into studio today. My pleasure. Been looking forward to uh, our EVA today. We meet an EVA on every episode of What's Under the Bonnet. And today we've got someone who's kind of gone from the extremes, from an EJ Holden to a Nissan Pulsar, cool BMWs, and some very, very nice uh, European-style sports cars as well. George Kirsch, welcome to What's Under the Bonnet. Happy to come on. Am I right in saying you drove a Tesla for the first time in the US before they were even really, you know, a popular thing in Australia, didn't you? I had a look uh, back at at my diaries and I found that in 2013, I was in Chicago for a conference and I had a free day before it started and I managed to get tickets to the Chicago Bulls and I also got an appointment to test drive a Tesla. When you went for that test drive, George, were you doing it with the view to thinking you would buy an EV or was it more interest? So what what was the trigger? You know, you've parted with some pretty nice vehicles. The world's changing and I noticed that uh, one of the things I did was at that time we had uh, solar on the roof and I was quite into looking at what the engines were doing to the planet. And I think as you get a bit older, you think about what are we leaving behind I actually had a hybrid 5 Series BMW along with my 430 Spyder. Started looking at uh, whether I'd get a plug-in hybrid. And my wife, our son had grown up, so my wife said it was time for her to have a sports car and she got a little Cayman. And from that point on, the uh, salesman at Porsche Sydney South, Anthony Jones, uh, he made his mission to uh, try and get me into a Porsche. (laughs) And he knew that I was into technology and that sort of thing. And I, I tried out a KN plug-in hybrid, but it just didn't have the range. Whereas uh, BMW 530e, they claimed a 48-kilometre range, but I ended up having about a 37-kilometre range. I ended up buying a 530e instead of the Tesla because it was a good eighty or $90,000 less. And there was another factor that was important was when my wife got into the Model S, She drove it for a minute, looked around and said, don't you dare buy this car. So, you know, happy wife. (laughs) What's changed uh, moving to the Taycan, moving to a fully electric? So have you had to change, you know, where do you charge? Do you sort of plan things differently? Tell us about that. Totally, totally. And I think the interesting thing was that when I had my M3, I had a V8 uh, M3 sedan I'd be buying petrol at least once a week, if not three times a fortnight. Then I got my hybrid um, and I'd be buying petrol every second week. Then I got my plug-in hybrid and the guy at the petrol station said, I only see you every three months. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what happened was that I did the, the maths and I paid for a PowerPoint at my parking spot in the hospital and I'd drive to work electric 
and then I'd plug it in and when I got down from work, finishing work, uh, it was recharged again and I'd drive home electric. So uh, the guys at BMW Sydney thought I was the, had the lowest fuel consumption of anybody <laughs> that they saw. And the only time I really used fuel was when we went across Sydney and back, um, you know, for a, a, and couldn't charge in between. The subject of today's podcast is around sort of government policy and infrastructure and so on. As someone who's, who loves all kinds of cars, but you've, you've clearly embraced EVs, what, in your opinion, needs to be done better around policy and, and infrastructure in this space, do you reckon, as a, as a you know, a proper user? Well, I think they, they need to sort out the charging on highways and that sort of thing because I've had times when I've got to a charging place and someone just drove in before me and even though the app said it was free, it suddenly became occupied. And I think that uh, they need to encourage when they're doing charging centres not to put in two but to put in six or 12, you know, and, and need to look forward because you look at countries around the world and we're a long way behind. The other thing that they really need to do is to make the car manufacturers have a certain percentage of cars that are electric or at least have a an average carbon emissions level or whatever, the way they do it overseas. And that forces the manufacturers to bring cars here that, you know, that are available already all around the world. And they need to look at where people will charge. It's easy for me. I've got a, a three-phase charger at home and I I just plug it in and it's programmed to charge off peak at night and it's charged in the morning. This morning I got in, it was 85% charge, which is you try and charge between 25 and 85 so that you're not stretching the battery too far and it's only when you go for a long drive that you put it up to 100%. I'm even working with Troy from Porsche Sydney South to, uh, to get the charger to actually put in the excess solar that I've put in with, rather than putting it back in the grid I can leave my car ch- plug, plugged in and it will charge just with free excess solar. Um, so those sorts of incentives are good to be able to, to use renewables to recharge. And I think that things like in the highways, we need to have charging stops areas where they've got big lo- loads of solar panels and batteries and then we're, we're charged, you know, you don't have to run wires everywhere, you know, you just do it in the location. Our country's big and wide. There's, there's no reason. And that's one of the reasons that I've changed to electric. And I must say that uh, I have friends who tell me, oh, you don't understand. I can fill up my car in five minutes. And I said, but you have to stop at the petrol station. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, I just drive home and plug it in, you know, and, and dated. everybody talks about range anxiety, but once you've got a reasonable electric car, the only time rains is an issue is when you go for the, the annual holiday or, you know, something like that. And, and really, that's becoming less and less of a problem. And it's interesting how people will base their, you know, make, base their argument on a, uh, on a, a 1% issue when 99% of the time that when you're using the car, I never think about my range. The only thing I look, it's no different to a petrol car. You look at the petrol gauge and you say, I have to go and get petrol. Well, I just have to plug it in. It's been awesome to talk to you today on the podcast. You are a great salesperson for this whole transition that we're talking about and the importance of, of um, you know, policy and, and government and so on. And I love the fact that you're a traditional 
car lover, George, given all the things that you've had in the garage over the years. I think one of the first in you, you know, in the early days might have been an EJ Holden. So you've gone right through the 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 whole gamut, which is um which is tremendous. And uh, it's been awesome to have you on the pod today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to, and, you know, really interesting. I really love the podcast too. I follow it every month. Let's roll through some EV news this month. One that caught Nadine's eye, and I alluded to it in the introduction today, um, let's be honest, a little outside our wheelhouse. What the hell is Electric Ferries doing in this rundown? I know, I know. I think it's great for us to think more broadly, though, we think about cars. Uh, The news was Kelsian Group, and they're one of Australia's largest integrated multimodal transport providers. So, um, in particular, the Lane Cove Ferry Service. And they've just signed... Tourism stuff, tourism stuff. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Mm. They've just signed a 15-year contract. And as part of that, um, you know, they actually want to be more mindful around low emissions technology and more sustainable marine transport solutions. So, they've got the option there for hydrogen as well as electric capability. So we could have a zero emissions ferry running. Stand by for that. That'd be a nice way to go into the office, wouldn't it? Nice and quiet. Would. Very sustainable. Now, Polestar are making headlines again this week, announcing pricing and specs for the Polestar 3 five-seat SUV. And instead of us kind of talking about this, we've actually got Polestar Australia MD Samantha Johnson on the line. Thank you very much for joining us, Samantha. Can you start by telling us a little bit about this new and exciting range of Polestars? So obviously we have the Polestar 2 out in the market at the moment, which is the um, beautiful Fastback, uh, which uh, has done very well in the local market. And uh, we sold uh, 1,500 um, Polestar 2s last year, and uh, we've got good demand for them this year as well. The Polestar 3 has been hugely um, successful in the interest so far. So as you mentioned, there's about 7,000 on the wait list for Polestar 3. And we've just opened our starter sales um, late last week. So we've got orders coming in now. So we're really happy with the response that we've had. And I think it's going to do very, very well in Australia. I think you probably have a, a different sort of standpoint than a lot of other manufacturers because you are a dedicated EV brand. I think I'd love to know a little more around sort of the education process for Polestar is a very different conversation. You're not trying to convert um, you know, original Polestar buyers to buy Polestar. So this is a, a kind of a different sales story, isn't it? A different marketing story, perhaps? Yeah, and I think it comes down to really um, influencing people as to the um, sustainability of EV ownership and also the, the performance and the ease of, of ownership. And also the, the total cost of ownership is really at parity with the um, you know, equivalent sort of petrol engine at the moment. So it's really educating consumers as on that. Um, and what we've been doing is we've been going out there and, and talking at, at events and with industry leaders, um, industry organisations on, um, you know, what the government needs to do to promote EV ownership in Australia and uh, really educating people on, you know, the, the need to be more sustainable in what we do. And electrification is really just the start of that. And it's really all the other things we need to do as an organisation to lead there. And in doing that education, that really lets people know about Polestar and what we stand for. And that that stands on its own merit. So we don't have to go out there, you know, sort of spruiking and selling cars. We, we're just going out there telling people about what we're doing to promote sustainability because that's what we're all about. And if we can influence the rest of the industry and others outside of the industry to do the same, then that's, that's a really good thing. 
Part of the the topic that we covered last month was around design on what's under the bonnet, and I've spent a couple of uh, about a week, in fact, in a Polestar two in in New Zealand, and and loved it. And for me, it was um, the look, the finish, um, the design. If if anything, it seems like the ethos is more about the car and the look in some respects, not and it not being quote unquote an EV sort of traditional shape. Does that make sense? Well, the um, CEO of Polestar is the ex-head of design for Volvo. So the whole range of Volvos that you see out in the market now compared to what they used to look like, you know, he was uh, very much a big contributor to that that new way of looking more innovative. So for Polestar, it's a very different look. Um, it's very much a, um, you know, Polestars are defined by, um, you know, sculptured surfaces, distinctive detail, you know, optimised aerodynamics, which also helps with the, the charge range and sustainability. And so it has a more sleeker and more sort of technical look. The Polestar 3 is a, is a large SUV, but it's still, it's very sleek. It's got a, a lowered and uh, extended roofline, which um, gives it a distinctive silhouette, uh, more sportier looking without compromising on the, the interior space. Samantha, I think we hear people talking about often the question is, are EVs better for the environment? Are they really as good as people say? And, and that the conversation, as we just touched on before, is getting broader. So people are now looking at the organisation's footprint as a whole. So how... Um, sustainable and how uh, eco-friendly the whole organisation is. Do you find those conversations happening and, and where do Polestar sit around those kind of conversations? So we look at the like life cycle assessment of our Polestar 2 that we have in the market at the moment and we when we compare that to an equivalent petrol engine then we see it's got you know less emissions when you're using just you know energy off the grid. If you're using uh, renewable energy it's less than half of the emissions during its use phase than an equivalent petrol engine. So right now, uh, just with you know um, renewable energy, it's a much better proposition sustainability-wise than a, a petrol vehicle. But then that's not enough. Uh, we need to look at the manufacturing of the vehicle, the end of life. Really, most of the sustainability built into a vehicle is determined at the design phase. So Polestar is aiming to have a zero emissions vehicle or carbon neutral vehicle by 2030 and being a neutral, carbon neutral organisation by 2040. So for us, we, we look at electrification being a first step, but it's about manufacturing, making sure our suppliers, uh, we use blockchain technology to source some of our products to make sure that they're uh, not just sustainably sourced, but also ethically sourced as well um, for human rights, for animal rights. Um, so there's a lot that, that we are doing to make sure that, um, you know, new renewable energy and um, is used in uh, even our aluminium and, uh, you know, recycled aluminium and uh, recycled cobalt and other things have been used in our, in our vehicles. So we're making sure wherever possible that circularity is really built into our vehicles so that at the end of life there's less that needs to be recycled and that we're, and we are working with um, government and other organisations at the moment for that end of life and how that works and specifically for us here in Australia, you know, how does that apply to Australia at end of life of the vehicle? So we, we are doing a lot in that space to make sure that we are reducing emissions, you know, in the long term um, out of the whole um, supply chain. We've been talking with Polestar Australia MD, Samantha Johnson. The new Polestar 3 looks amazing. You've done a super job here, which means... You've earned a ticket to come back on the podcast at some stage. We would love to do that if that's okay with you. <laughs> that, that would be fantastic. It would be a pleasure. Listener Mailbox.
bounce through a little bit of mail, shall we? You can send us a voice memo to uh, podcast at carsales.com.au or just do a traditional email, fire in whatever you like. Uh, one here for you, Nadine, from Rachel. Um, I'm pretty keen to buy an EV. I don't have a garage or off-street parking. It makes it all less convenient if I have to find somewhere to charge. Um, will we be allowed to run power cords from our house to our cars. There is some crazy stuff on this that I've seen on social media too <laughs> about things people do and little safety mechanisms over footpaths and so on. Um, or will there be more charging stations soon? It is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Isn't the, it? the charging yeah. infrastructure. But I hear you, Rachel, because I'm in exactly the same position. I know I've spoken about it before on the podcast. It's always nice to speak to your local council is probably your first point because it is a safety hazard to have cords across the footpaths and onto the cars and onto the road. The good news is that there are trials in place for solutions. Uh, power pole charging, for example. I know some trials are happening in Sydney, as well as companies like one called Curb Charge who work with the local council to actually put a pop-up charger outside your house. So if you don't have off-street parking it is possible. Yes, you have to pay for it. We've actually got the team from Curb Charge coming on the pod in a few weeks. So we'll talk a bit more about that and how it works soon. I expect we'll see a lot more of this kind of thing, don't you think, Rusty? You know, innovative solutions as the demand increases. Particularly when you're talking about um, big cities, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and, and right around the country for that matter. I mean, that's where the greater concentration of the population is, right? And we've got some older dwellings there that aren't necessarily geared for this. So we're going to have to come up with um, solutions, as you as you rightly say. Uh, please be safe, folks. Don't go running power cords up over trees and, and <laughs> things like that trying to, to solve your problem. We'd love to hear what you're doing, to be honest. You know, what is your situation? Shoot us an email, send us a voice note. We'd really love to hear, you know, this is a barrier, we know. So how are you overcoming it at the moment? And send us some pictures while you're at it to podcast at carsales.com.au. Early in this first series of the podcast, Scott Naga from Hyundai Australia joined us. He is the Senior Manager, Future Mobility and Government Relations. So he's a regular in Canberra. And we thought given today's theme, it was high time that we caught up with him again. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Scott, earlier in the program, we spoke with Dr. Gail Broadbent, and one of the key messages from her was that both federal and state government need to get on board together and that they have to take action now. You're in the thick of this government discussions. You're, you're there. Like, what are you hearing in this regard? Yeah, it's one of the critical things the industry is pushing hard for is consistency across the country. We need to have consistent state government policy and strong federal leadership. So we're working very hard with the federal government. I head back down in two days' time to Canberra for the, this week's sitting. Um, and we've just come back from Korea with the Premier of Western Australia and he got to drive um, hydrogen cars and hydrogen trucks and buses our R&D facility, which was great for him to experience that. But we do need that consistency across all the states, territories, and strong federal leadership. Can you get a sense from your, your chats with government about implementation of, of things? What, you know, we know that we're well behind other countries. Where are we at in terms of progress? There's a lot of progress happening right now. The electric, uh, National Electric Vehicle Strategy is underway. Uh, it's part of my discussions. I want to head back this week with the, the key staffers of some ministers to see where they're up to. Uh, a lot of people have made submissions. I think they had an incredible amount of submissions, which has overwhelmed them. Uh, so they're going through and working through those now uh, and work out where we need to be for the future and what's going to happen. We don't want to go too early. Uh, we, we don't have the variety of vehicles to replace internal combustion but we don't want to go too late easy and be a, a prior to the rest of the world. So we're working carefully to ensure that 
it's done in a timely fashion. And I've just come back from doing a, a five and a half or a bit of about, about 5,000 K driver in New South Wales, kissing all three borders just to have that reality check of the, the vast distances between our capital cities, but also our regional centres. And that, you know, we're driving between Wentworth and, and Broken Hill or Broken Hill out to Cobra up to Lightning Ridge. There are massive distances that need to be covered somehow because cars need to do those drives. I've got to see and meet and talk to some EV drivers from uh, other brands about their experiences getting from out to Broken Hill from those, those big distances. So there's still a lot of challenges, a lot of road space to put a lot of infrastructure in, and there's going to be some challenge about getting power to those locations, whether they're completely off-grid solar locations, you know, three or four of those between Wentworth and, and Broken Hill and then you know, back towards civilization, back back to um, Sydney. Scott, uh, the one thing that also comes up, you know, the introduction of mandatory fuel emission standards, it's another key driver for change. We know that. Why is it taking us so long to make policy around this? Yeah, this is the third go of it. So it just come around a couple of times before. Um, amongst the OECD countries, one of the only countries in the world that don't have it, I understand the other country is Russia. So we're, we're kind of out there on a limb. So it's being worked on now. No one's opposed that and it's something we need to do. But we need to make sure it's done in a way that's it's really going to ensure that we can drive consumer choice when it comes to those new EVs. If we move too quickly, we've got to have those replacement assets in place. So it's those cars that can be used for farming and that can be used for regional areas out of metro. Um, everything we do today needs to be replaced with a zero emission variation of that. But how do we get there? So... Our idea is if we, if we go with a reasonable time frame, a lot of people are pushing 2035. I think that, or we think that's a little bit too soon. But most critically, it doesn't matter what time we choose. We don't have the infrastructure in place to support that range of vehicles. And we don't have it in place now. We're struggling for the future as well. We're really going to have a problem in Australia. And we see that around the world now where you don't have the infrastructure in place before the vehicles arrive. There's a, there's a big drama and we're starting to see queue-ups behind EV charges now, but not just that, it's something we're pushing hard with Canberra. It's great if you use public funding um, or, or partnership funding to get these EV stations out there, but if there's no KPIs around uptime and operational time, um, there's a real big issue. There's a lot of stations are down at the moment. Um, I drive around quite regularly in EVs and I'll be heading back to Canberra in EV this week. I really have to study where those stations are and what's operational because I've found a lot of times that if, if they're down, you're in a bit of strife, you're probably waiting behind a long queue of people. Scott, we're talking to Minister Matt Keane um, next in, in today's show. What are kind of a few things you think we should be um, asking him, you know, around what you're, what you're doing and, and what you think would resonate with our, our audience? Yeah, it's, it's great to chat with Matt. We chat with Matt quite regularly. He was actually first the first person that would drive a, a full production registered hydrogen fuel cell vehicle here at our side in Sydney. We think they need to focus on the infrastructure is really key. Um, NRMA's put a lot of charging stations out and the state government has gone through and um, backed the expansion of that rollout. But in a lot of those cases, it's one or two stations. We need to see three, four or five stations in those locations. Uh, we also need to see government fleet transition. So what is the government driving today? Um, can we transition with the vehicles we've got here today, both Hyundai, Nissan, Tesla, MG, whoever it might be? Um, what can we do to transition those? But also looking at what the government fleet is. We see quite often when people say, I want a car with 500 kilometre range and you know, a huge battery in it, which adds a lot of expense to a vehicle. What's the actual size of your fleet? What's it running each day? What's the average kilometres per day? If it's 20 or 30 kilometres per day, you don't need a car for 500 kilometre range battery. And, and things like our Kona, EV have um, a smaller battery and a larger battery, so one with 310k's range and, and one with more. So we need to ensure that people understand the technology, buy the 
technology that suits their fleet, um, especially if you've got a whole paddock full of cars that do 30 kilometres a day round trip, you don't need a more expensive vehicle with a much larger battery because every third or fourth car you buy is almost a free car if you're saving that, that cost difference of going from a, a mid-range battery to a long-range battery. We can be a little bit impatient, Scott. Um, what are the couple of, a couple of messages maybe for the listeners in terms of the, the, the policy discussion? You know, what are a couple of key messages to help people understand what's happening and why it takes a while to, to actually achieve this change? You need to make sure that you've got the right amount. I mean, the biggest one is infrastructure. The right amount of infrastructure needs to be in place. We know that 92% of charging is done at home, but if there's no infrastructure in public that people can see and access, then they're hesitant to buy the vehicle. So we're working hard to ensure that public infrastructure is there. But we also need local councils need to do a lot more. You know, we're seeing some local councils are absolute leaders in this space and others are going... Um, you know, we'll think about trialling a, a hybrid uh, maybe in the next 12 months. So uh, we present at the Australian local government conferences each year, both the fleet and the National Congress. And, and there's a big variance of what the leaders are doing to where some of the people in, in, the, in the back of the um, transition queue are doing. And, and they're just starting to think about a hybrid now. They, they probably should be thinking a lot further beyond hybrids. It's 20-year-old technology and we're starting to shift away from that uh, globally. So we're going to work hard and hopefully our, our competitors are going to work hard to help educate everyone across the business sector but also the local and, and state government sector to ensure they understand what the technology is, what it takes to transition and, and how they can do it. You've been unreal, mate. Uh, we kind of uh, threw out the line uh, very late in the piece. You've been busy with government and on the road and things like that we know, uh, but you've been super at helping to paint this picture for our audience on where things are at and what to expect in the future. Scott Naga from Hyundai Australia, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Rusty, today's discussion, as is often the case, comes back to the need for a cohesive national policy on electric vehicles. Fast-tracking EV uptake and government action go hand in hand. And our next guest is going to speak about both. Matt Keane is the New South Wales Treasurer, Minister for Energy and Member for Hornsby. Matt Keane, welcome. Nadine, hey Greg, how are you doing? G'day. Thank you for joining us on What's Under the Bonnet. Well, thank you for having me. This is very exciting to come on the program, Nadine. And timely because you've had some big announcements recently. Um, I guess let's, let's start by saying, look, New South Wales arguably has one of the best EV strategies in the country. Why has this been a priority for the government? Well, I think because we realise that the world is changing and it's moving very quickly. Um, you know, our uh, view is that EVs will be here uh, in our country, whether we like it or not, and we're just preparing the way for them. Um, so that means making it as easy as possible for people to buy and drive an EV and charge up. Charging infrastructure is one of the, the biggest points of concern naturally for consumers. And you recently have made a, a huge announcement in this area. Can we delve into that? They've, I mean, headlined by a significant amount of charges in New South Wales within only a few years. Yeah, so we've committed that we're going to roll out 30,000 new EV charges in New South Wales by 2026. That's twice the number of existing petrol pumps in New South Wales that we're going to deliver in the next three years. So there's 15,000 wow. petrol pumps to service all the um, combustion engine vehicles across the state. We're changing our planning laws, we're changing our strata laws, and we're also investing in rolling out EV charges in our transport hubs uh, to deliver 30,000 across the state in three years. I'd love to touch on what you were talking about, reforming the strata laws so it's easier 
you know, particularly for installation around apartment living. Talk to me about that. Yeah, well, we want to make it as easy as possible for people that uh, don't have off-street parking to be able to charge their car. Um, so, you know, one of the fe- bits of feedback we got from Strata owners is that often the owners' corporations are, you know, controlled by people maybe of a different generation that don't believe in electric vehicles. So what we're doing is we're going to make it, you know, there has to be an acceptable reason to refuse installing an electric vehicle charger in a unit block. Uh, They can't just be stopped because of ideology. Uh, So we're clearing barriers and making it easy for people that live in apartment blocks to install a charging station so that they too can charge up their car when they get home, like those people that have garages, et cetera. So this is just making, changing the planning laws to make them uh, modern and fit for purpose. Now, can we talk financial incentives for a second? How is the New South Wales government making it easier for people to to get into, to drive EVs and, and so on? Tell us about, you know, the whole notion of either people paying stamp duty before or rebates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what we're doing is we're removing stamp duty on EVs under $78,000 and we're providing rebates of up to $3,000 for any EV under $68,750. That's the large luxury car tax threshold in this state. We're also providing incentives to fleets to be able to transition to EV. So uh, we know that fleets on average turn over vehicles once every three years. So that means that we'll catalyse the development of the second-hand market and, again, lower the price of entry for people looking for an EV that may not be able to afford a brand-new EV. So this is about getting more EVs into the market, incentivising people to go in and buy an EV and lower the price point to make it competitive with combustion in your vehicles. Matt, there's some great positives in this discussion, which I think is hugely important, but you can appreciate, I'm sure, there'll be naysayers, right? There'll be people listening going, how achievable is this? Uh, is this just headlines? Um, what is kind of your your response to that? I mean, clearly you are passionate about this space and, and making it happen. Um, there's lots of work to do in order to execute that. What would you tell the doubters? Well, Greg, what I'd say is that electric vehicles are coming uh, whether we like it or not. Um, the reality is the big car manufacturers are moving out of combustion engine vehicles uh, to electric. Just look at General Motors, look at Ford. Um, that's before you look at the European car manufacturers. Mercedes, BMW, all the major car manufacturers, including Toyota, they're moving to phase out combustion engine vehicles uh, by the 2030s. What my job is as the Minister for Energy, as the as the Treasurer of New South Wales, is to make sure that we facilitate that transition. How do we do that? Well, we install, start building up the electric vehicle charging infrastructure so that people can drive an EV and enjoy our beautiful roads uh, and enjoy our beautiful state of New South Wales. Uh, So that's why we're rolling out charges. But we're also lowering the barrier to entry for people to transition to an EV to make it as easy as possible for people to own and drive an EV in the state. How do you see New South Wales becoming this sort of more, you know, the clean energy superpower, so to speak? Well, Nadine, I think that here in New South Wales, we've got a unique challenge that four of our five coal-fired power stations are going to close in the next 10 years. And so we really need to plan for the modernisation of our electricity system. That's what we've done. We've legislated a plan to build the replacement generation that we're going to need over the next decade. The, The cheapest way to deliver reliable energy today also happens to be delivering clean energy. What that means is that when you 
deliver, decarbonize your electricity system, then you also decarbonize things that hang off the electricity system. This is why electric vehicles work so well, because transport accounts for about 18% of our total emissions here in this state. And if we can electrify uh, how we move around New South Wales, then that will be a big game changer when it comes to ensuring New South Wales um, is leading the way when it comes to tackling emissions. We're chatting with New South Wales Treasurer, Minister for Energy and Member for Hornsby, Matt Keane. We cannot let you go without knowing what your daily drive is. And if I'm not wrong, it's it's something that requires a bit of charge, isn't it? Mate, it certainly is. I've got a Tesla <laughs> Model 3. I, um, I, when I became the Environment Minister, Greg, they handed me a big Toyota Kluger. And, um, mate, great car and great to drive, but I didn't think that was very on brand. So um, I, got them, I got them to cost off the EV and because um, uh, my lease was up and turned out that the, the cost when you included the operating costs uh, was around the same as the Kluger. So we thought, We'll give it a whirl. And, mate, haven't looked back. It's a great car. It's fun to drive. And I'm told it goes very fast. You're told. Is that right? <laughs> I'm sure you know. I'm sure you know. Hey, you've been fabulous coming on and, and um, sharing lots of, of great information today for our audience. I know they'll be appreciative of that. And at some point we'll twist your arm and get you back on, uh, back on the pod again. Good on you, Greg. Love your work, Nadine and Greg. Thanks for having me Thank on the you. program. We're out of time, and that's because we've jammed so much into this episode. Bit to unpack from it, isn't there? There was a lot there. I, I really enjoyed that. Dr. Broadbent was really fascinating, and I love that she brought it together for me. You know, there are so many moving parts, and everybody has to get on board at the same time, which is yesterday, according to her, yes. and just get it done. What are you driving at the moment? Come on. I'm in a Havel this week, Ooh. Havel H6 GT. Uh, I was in a Genesis GV70 EV last week. So, yeah, going from one extreme to the other at the moment, which is the name of the game at the moment. Word on the street is uh, bonjour, something a little French too, maybe. Some Peugeots, yeah, a few new Peugeots out. So the 308 GT. How's your French? My French is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to attempt it. Right. Uh, <laughs> what is in the next episode of What's Under the Bonnet? Uh, it's, a, it's another really big one and... The, the whole question is, if we all get on board with EVs, if the sales forecasts get to where they're expected to get to, can the grid cope? So we're going to look at energy distributors, transmissions, how, how does that work and will we be changing? Are there things that need to change in order for this to happen? If we all plug in, are we going to have power outages? That's a big question people have. If you've got a question about something that uh, came out of today's episode or you're on board for the next What's Under the Bonnet, Can the Grid Cope? Fire it into us, podcast at carsales.com.au. For Nadine and the team, I'm Greg Rust. We'll catch you next time, everyone. Bye for now. Production.